Okay, so here's what I want to do. I want to, where Mark requires, I want us to slow down. And where Mark permits, uh, we can speed up. <clears throat> so the, you'll see sections in Mark's Gospel where we can um, go at a bit more of a brisk pace as it's very similar stories being told, especially in some of the miraculous sections, um, to come in and try to derive new and fresh meaning from each of these stories in succession would be just redundant. So we can move a little quicker through that. Text today, uh, text like the one we have today, though, we'll have to go a little slower because I want us to read Mark um, with all the intention that he expected his first audience to read it. And that's going to require some considerable backstory. So we're only going to cover the first eight verses today. Um, I, what I want to do is I want to read them straight through, get a feel for them as a whole, and then um, we'll pray over it, and then we will hop into our stuff for the day. So this is Mark 1, starting um, in verse 1, going through verse 8. I'm reading out of the ESV. Um, for those of you who aren't used to this, this is Mark's Gospel. It says, The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray over this, and then we'll jump in. God, you are good. And you are big, uh, which means that you had to stoop to speak to us. But speak to us you did, and without your revelation, we would not have sufficient words to know you. Without your revelation, we wouldn't know who we are. We would not have any idea what it looks like to have a reconciled relationship with and so may we never take for granted the necessity of the scriptures and the great mercy that they are to us. We are grateful that we have them several thousand years after they were finished. Grateful for the men and women that you use by your spirit to pass them on, to preserve them. Thankful for your providence to maintain your perfect words for us. And I pray that we would come to them with hearts that are willing to change, with minds that want to be transformed, and with a will that wants to obey no matter what. Help us to know you through these words and help us to love you better because of them. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Um, 
I enjoy, and I know Phil does too, I enjoy the Star Wars movies. Anybody else enjoy the Star Wars movies? Okay. Now, I just enjoy them. Like, I do not get the fandom. I don't understand. So that's where Phil and I have to part ways. <laughs> I don't get the obsession with them. But I feel the same way about Harry Potter. I've seen all the movies. Don't enjoy them. Exciting, entertaining. Don't get the obsession at all. Lord of the Rings, same story. I, I got through them once and I thought, I just don't think I'll ever have time to do that again. <laughs> but some people love them. And they're fascinated by them and they are so deeply entrenched in all of the stuff. And I wonder why. Why do they care so much and I don't? It's not that I'm not nerdy too. Like Phil's a nerd and I'm a nerd. We're just nerdy about different things. Why do I not care about the same things Phil does? And I've come to, to the conclusion that it's because I have not invested the time to fill in all the backstory. Like I don't know the names of anyone but about five people in Star Wars. I don't know all the family trees. Phil... And I went on one time. I went to Phil's house to record a podcast. I think about sports, but it went to Star Wars, and um, he has legitimate theories about who's who, like Ray, the new character in the new Star Wars, who she's related to, and how she is a Jedi. He's got all these theories. Yeah. No, no, and, and I won't fault him for it. It's because he's invested. He knows the genealogy. He knows this galactic geography. He knows all these things. He knows the history. They had to make this new Rogue One movie just for dummies like me to figure out everything. <laughs> Austin Weiss, Paul Weiss's youngest son, uh, Morgan's little brother, is a Lord of the Rings nut. Like, crazy about it. He knows everything. I think he had to learn a new language to figure all this stuff out. Same thing with Harry Potter. There's so much that goes into figuring all this stuff out that at best I can be entertained, I can enjoy them, but I cannot appreciate them because I don't see the complexity in these stories. I don't see all the layers behind. I'm not making all these connections. I can't synthesize the story like Phil can. Phil can turn on any five-minute clip for any of the Star Wars movies, I'm assuming, and tell you where he is in the arc of the story. And know who's involved and what all the players are and what's about to happen and what just happened and why, Ryan, you just don't get it. <laughs> so I, I enjoy these things. I'm a casual observer who cannot appreciate the fine details and therefore miss a lot of the subtleties and a lot of the meaning. And I think a lot of us enjoy the Gospels. And we don't know the backstory. We don't know the overarching narrative. We don't know the lineages. We don't know all the little subtle allusions to other things. We don't see all the layers when Mark opens up his gospel the way he does. I'm not going to plumb the depths of the first eight verses of Mark, but I will, before we get out of here, go read five other Old Testament passages that I think are very relevant to this, and I'm not exhausting them all. But I think a lot of times we zoom through these books. I like Matt. I like Mark, I like Luke, I like John. What are they about? Well, they're about Jesus. Well, tell me the story. Well, I know they all end with him on a cross. And I'm pretty sure all of them end with him out of the grave. Now, I'm, I'm 
probably misrepresenting all of us, right? We don't, we know more about them than that, but do you see, can you read through Mark's prologue and see the games he's playing? Because they're not games intended to manipulate, they're games intended to communicate. Games intended to help you understand the rest of the book. And so my great concern is that sometimes we come through books like these that are the four most profound books we have, and we only ever read them at surface levels. So um, think about how they start. Matthew and Luke start with the genealogies, more or less. Luke takes a little while to get there, but they start with Adam. Matthew starts with Adam, Luke works his way back to Adam, but that's what they're doing. John says the beginning of his gospel is even further back than that. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He sees, if, if Matthew and Luke go back to the beginning, to our first father Adam, John goes back even farther than that. That's where they say the gospel starts for them. Mark says the gospel starts when John the Baptist showed up. Mark, are you dumb? Like, did you, did you forget everything else? He didn't forget everything else, but he masterfully weaves it into a story and says, yes, it all starts with John the Baptist. So the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and he says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. When we hear this passage read, we all know that is the prelude to John the Baptist. When Mark's audience read this, none of them thought that. A bit of our disadvantage when we come to the Gospels is that we've read them before. We know how they end. We know where he's going. And we lose a little bit of the element of being caught off guard, being surprised. None of these are intended, at least initially, to refer to John the Baptist. And actually, they're not, not even all from Isaiah, even though Mark says so. Mark weaves three Old Testament quotations together, and uh, quotations is a loose word, more allusions, references to, hints at, um, to dramatic effect. And now you might say, now, isn't he being a little subtle? Isn't he just, why can't he be more clear? Because he doesn't have to be. Um, we, just, we just swore in a new president of the United States. Now, look at how much loaded information I can shove into a few sentences where we don't have to have long dialogues, but we're on the same page. Donald Trump will be, because of the nature of his office, compared, like it or not, to 44. He will. He'll be compared, like it or not, to Republican predecessors, the two Bushes, Reagan, He'll be compared to Clinton because he comes when the economy is at a bit of a rough spot and there needs to be some sort of fix in place. Now, what if I just, okay, so all that is easy. What if I say, but I want a president who has the virtue of the first one, the integrity of George Washington. Like I can walk out of this room right now and you all understood what I was saying. I want him to be able to deal with difficult situations and to have the moral compass of Lincoln. 
I don't need to explain the Civil War. I don't need to un explain the, the crisis that the United States went through during his leading up to and then during his presidency. We all know it. It's our history. Um, I want him to have the decisive nature. I, I'm going to be looking at him compared to other wartime presidents. And I want to see how he handles conflict. You guys all go to Vietnam, to Desert Storm, to World War I, II, to Korea. We have this instinctive, like, revolutionary spirit that we all agree on. Americans love the underdog because that's kind of how we came about. Um, when, I was a, when I was a student at OSU, I had a couple of um, professors from, one was English and one was um, Welsh. But I loved um, the one summer that I was actually on campus with them doing some stuff um, before the semester started and happened to be Fourth of July weekend. I love asking them what their plans were to celebrate. <laughs> you know, you're lost. And I just, like, there's something about me that loves that story. I say, hey, what are your plans this weekend? They know I'm teasing them. And, and I know that they know. That, and so it's like, I don't have to explain the story. Mark doesn't have to explain the story. He's talking to people who know their story. They have Abraham, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Caleb, David, Elijah. That's an important one for today. Daniel, Ezekiel, Isaiah for sure. They have all this stuff in their head. He doesn't have to explain it. He just has to reference it. And that's what he does. As he weaves these three quotations or allusions together. So I'm just going to go back to the very first one. Um, in Exodus 23. It can be difficult to even slice up this, um, this little poetic piece as it is written in the Isaiah the prophet. It's so well blended together, but... Let's go to Exodus 23 first. Now, Exodus 23, what's taking place is Moses. So we've left, um, we've left Egypt. Moses is chatting with God on Sinai. And they're sorting out how they're going to enter the promised land. Um... One thing that we should never forget in the Exodus account is that Israel did not leave um, Egypt as a military power in any sense of the word. They were slaves. They weren't trained as a stand. They didn't have a standing army. They, at best, they might have. They did. They did pillage Egypt before they left. Um, so maybe they took some weapons. Maybe they swam back into the sea and got them after they all floated to the bottom. I don't know. But Israel is no powerhouse, and they're about to go into Canaan, which is a place of severe tribal warfare with small, ki small kingdoms, more like tribes, but they have leaders and they have military men, and they are willing to defend their outpost. In fact... When you look at the Old Testament and you see where God says, I want you to leave nothing unturned. I want you to kill everything in sight. He's talking about taking fortified cities. Cities with high walls and, and uh, a, a trained... It's, it's more like a garrison than a city. It's more like a military outpost 
on the path towards the city. God says, I want you to level it. And if you're Israel, you're like, okay. Do we throw rocks? Like, how do we do this? And he's like, no, that comes later with Goliath. Here's what we're going to do. We are going to take it. And he's talking with Moses on Sinai. He says in Exodus 23, in verse 20, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Now, um, a couple of things from this passage. We know, in some sense, God will be with them as they take the land. Um, we know, in some sense, this is on the heels of the Exodus. And think of all the imagery that is laid on top of the Exodus. The, the Exodus 12, the Passover. A lamb has been slain for your protection so that you might escape the coming fury. Redemption from bondage and deliverance from captivity. And then God says, and my angel is going to lead you into the promised land. He's going to deliver you. He's going to make good on the redemption that just took place. Another word for angel is messenger. And Mark 1 says, behold, I send my messenger before your face. We'll find out in a second who that is. But if you are, if you are a first century reader, you say, okay, this is connected somehow to God's delivering of his people. To his agency in that process. To the fact that you can't do this and therefore I'll do it for you. And we see this play out in Mark, in Jesus. Okay, now look, who will prepare your way. We're going to keep going. There's another one in this uh, before we ever get to Isaiah, flip all the way down to Malachi. In our Bibles, it's the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi 3. There we go. Watch how this stuff starts blending together. Now, a little backstory on Malachi. Malachi is a... He is a prophet whose main job is to go and rebuke the leadership for their casual attitude, their cavalier attitude that they display in the temple during worship. Think very much about Jim's sermon last week um, where the, the courtyard and, the, and there's all this buying and selling going on. It's profaning God's name in the temple. That's what Malachi's prophecies are pretty much all about. Nick. All right, this is what you're doing and God is not happy. So, this is, I'm actually going to start in chapter 2, verse 17, because that's, those are kind of the introductory verses to this. It says, You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, How have we wearied him? And the response is, By saying, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Think very much about the den of robbers where you feel safe. Or you will come and you will profane the Lord's name and then pretend like it doesn't bother him. Like pretend that the temple is some sort of safe haven for wickedness. So what you, you'll do evil and then call it good. And he says, or when judgment comes, you'll ask, where is the God of justice? Shake your fist at him. And then chapter 3 opens. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. 
That is, those might seem benign, but those are not kind words. When the Lord comes into his temple, that is an act of judgment. That is an act of um, destruction against those who would profane him. Purification. So these texts have been woven together. The Exodus account, God will lead them out and care for them along the way. The Malachi account, God will come and He will purify His people. He will, he will basically take those who repent and pull them in, and those who refuse to do so, He will destroy. And then He ends, Mark 1 does, or Mark 1, 3 does, with an actual Isaiah quotation, finally. And just to recount Isaiah's structure as quickly as I can, first six chapters are the call of Isaiah. Um, 7 through 35 are the prophecies against the nation for their disobedience and the fact that they will go into exile. Chapters 36 through 39 are the historical narrative where you have Sennacherib, you have Hezekiah, you have all this stuff going on where judgment is indeed coming. Chapter 40, which is where we're at now, chapter 40 of Isaiah is the beginning of this beautiful hope. 40 through 66 tells the tale of uh, a soon coming new exodus. Take all the exodus imagery from the actual book of Exodus. Passover, deliverance from evil, leadership in the wilderness, purifying in the wilderness, and say the new exodus is coming somehow, some way. This is what it says in chapter 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned or forgiven, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. In other words, you have paid, you have served your sentence. Now this is talking about Israel in exile, and it is talking about the, the, the return to Jerusalem so that they can rebuild the temple. It is talking that you have done your time in Babylon. You're coming home. At some point. <laughs> Not yet. Verse 3. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, and make straight in the desert a highway for our God. What this is saying is that it is God Himself who will lead you home. It is God Himself who will carry you across the desert. It's important to remember that the Israelites in Babylon, most of them hadn't even been to Jerusalem before. They were born in captivity. Not only So Judea is a foreign land to them. Crossing a treacherous desert is an impossibility for them. How will you survive? And God says, I'll, I'll lead. Remember how I sent my messenger through the wilderness to take you to Canaan? And because of your idiotic problems, it took us a little longer than we expected. But I got you there. Remember how I cared for you? He says, I'll take you home. I'll take you home. And then the rest of 40, and uh, we won't read it, although everything in me wants to, but the rest of 40 says, basically, redemption is going to look like the presence of God being with you again. God himself will be with you again. Think of all the places God has been with his people. In Eden, he walked with Adam and Eve. He had some special relationship with Abraham. Spoke with Moses on the mountain. In the tabernacle, he had his presence in a very special way of fire and smoke. In the temple, he was so significant in the Holy of Holies, the priests had to scatter whenever he first showed up. 
But by the time you get to Isaiah's time, and certainly by the time you get to Mark's time, God's presence just hasn't been felt like that in a long time. Have we nullified the covenant? Like they're talking to God. Are, are we still good? Are we still your people? I haven't seen you in a while. But Mark opens up. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. If you weave those three Old Testament texts together, what you get is God is coming with probably a new Passover. We'll find out about that later, but definitely a new deliverance from slavery. And definitely he's going to purify his temple. That's going to look rough against the leadership. And you'll see that John the Baptist really has no problems yelling at the leadership. He's going to purify us. So there's going to be redemption. There's going to be an expectation of holiness. And God's going to be with us again. He'll be with us in this restoration. This What is that going to look like in, in, when this new exodus comes along and the new heavens and new earth that have been prophesied at the end of Isaiah actually come to fruition? It's going to look like redemption, holiness, and the presence of God. This is how Mark starts. So Matthew starts with Adam. Luke eventually gets to Adam. John starts even before that at the, pre, the pre-incarnate Jesus. And Mark just weaves these things together and says, yeah, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, runs all the way back to the beginning of Scripture. According to the Scriptures. <coughs> and then, verse 4, John appeared. Baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance. Uh, A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Why didn't John start in Jerusalem? If you want to lead a revival, if you want to get the most people to repent... Why not go to the most concentrated place where Jewish people live? To the Holy Why would why would you not carry out this campaign like Peter did in Acts? Right there in the city center. Why the desert? Why the wilderness? If you take everything that we just read from Exodus through to Deuteronomy into the prophetic books, you know. God is going to come from the wilderness. That's where his salvation will come. That's where his provision takes place. It's also where his judgment comes from. There is a very strong connection to God's care for his people and his providential action to to move forward the plan of redemption and the wilderness. That's where John comes from and he is, after all, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. He is, even if these aren't prophecies verbatim, he is enacting the Old Testament story. I mean, it's, it's almost like he's, he's doing everything he can so that, so that we'll get it. He is, he is um, preaching in line with the Old Testament. He is following through with Old Testament rituals. He's taking on the the very persona of a very significant Old Testament character we'll see here in a second. He is embodying Israel coming out of the desert into 
promised land in many ways. He wants all of his audience to see that. He's proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, um, we've said a number of times in here that it's really not that common for Jews to baptize Jews for this reason. You wouldn't baptize, um, like if, if you grew up, if I were a Jewish father and my son, um, like he's just, he doesn't have a decision to make. He just belongs to Yahweh. Like that's, that's the deal. He's in the family, he's in the covenant. So long as he doesn't apostatize, he's, he's in. Like there's not going to be a point where he decides and I baptize him. That's not Judaism. Um, there will be ceremonial cleansings where you would wash to purify oneself, but there isn't baptism of repentance like we're used to. The closest thing that they would have would be if you're a Gentile and you convert to Judaism. You would baptize, die to your Gentileness and come to Judaism that way. But John is proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. I think that it's quite clear that he is inaugurating a new practice. One of the reasons that he is such a spectacle is because no one does this. And he is saying, in effect, with his words, with his dress, we'll see here in a second, with his action, with his location, with all the things that he does, he's saying something crazy is about to happen and you need to get ready. You need to repent and align yourself with God. Align yourself with Yahweh. Turn from your wicked ways, lest the judgment of Malachi 3 take place on you. And so this, is a, this truly is a baptism. This isn't a baptism for that gains repentance. This is a baptism as a ceremony of that you are repenting. So I don't know if, if we're slicing that too thin. But in all the country, a little bit of hyperbole, all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were coming out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And then we have this. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Of all the things that you might want to know about John, this is what Mark thinks we need to know. What was he wearing? Um, this does appear as if it, he's trying to just communicate the fact that he's a crazy man. Um, that this is not a guy you want to be like caught with after dark. It could go badly. He might have a shiv somewhere. We don't know. <laughs> I kind of always assumed that's what the picture of John the Baptist was. Is like you have this lunatic who's preaching a good story. That's kind of what I got. But that's not what he's trying to do. Notice, Mark doesn't even explain it. Just expects you to know it. So the question is, why tell you this story? Because John the Baptist is taking on the role of a very prominent figure in the Old Testament. So if you would like to read... Quite, com quite possibly the most comical story in the Old Testament. Go to 2 Kings 1. 2 Kings 1 opens up with the king of Israel having a little bit of an accident. He falls, takes a tumble, and he's injured. Now, King um, Ahaziah says to his servants, I want you to go and uh, to the temple of Baal and ask him if this is going to work out all right. So they're on, servants are on their way to go <coughs> beseech some um, lesser god and ask 
how is this going to play out? Will the king survive this terrible tragedy? And along the way, they pass just this weirdo sitting on the side of a hill. And uh, he says this. Uh, Where am I? He says this in verse 3. Is it because there is no God in Israel, this is what the prophet is saying to the messengers, that you're going to inquire of Baal Zebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, uh, where am I? Thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. So Elijah the prophet says to the messengers, because you're going to go ask for help or the foreknowledge of some other god, um, you're going to die, King Ahaziah. Congratulations. So, <laughs> this story is late. They go back and they say, all right, king, um, we met this guy. And, and here's the story. There came a man to meet us, and he said to us, Go back to the king who sent you, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. And then the king says, What kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? And they answered him, He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. And the king said, I know that guy. It's Elijah the Tishbite. Now, we could just stop there and go back to Mark, but this story is too hilarious to stop there. So, the king's response to the Lord's word through Elijah that you're going to die because you did something wicked is, he says, okay, I'm going to send 50 guys to go deal with Elijah. And so the 50 guys start walking towards the hill, and Elijah just calls down fireballs. <laughs> burns them up. Like napalm. Just roast them. And then the king finds out about it. His best idea, send 50 more. Elijah sees him coming, calls down fire from heaven, roasts him, and just kind of sits on the hill saying, what are you going to do about it? And then I love the end of the story because it basically says, um, the next group of 50, the king doesn't learn. He probably has a traumatic head injury, but the king doesn't learn. <laughs> Sends the next group of 50 guys, and the commander like walks up very carefully and says, I'm really sorry, please don't kill me. I know what you've done to everybody else. Please, just don't do this. And God tells Elijah, okay, you can have a little mercy on him. Go and tell the king. And so the end of the story is Elijah walks into the king and says, you're going to die. And walks off. <laughs> and he dies. Like, I love that story. Challenge God, fireballs. Challenge him again, fireballs. All right, we're sorry. You're still going to die. Boom. Walks off. I love that story. But the whole point of that whole story is that Elijah is well known to have dressed like this. Now, we could say, therefore, if John the Baptist is being compared or taking the office of Elijah, is he going to call down fireballs from heaven? That's not the point of the story. The point is actually how your Old Testament ends. Back to Malachi. Back to Malachi, chapter 4. Remember, Malachi is no soft-spoken book. It's a book that's got quite a bit of judgment themes running through it. Um, I'm actually going to, chapter 4 is only a few verses long. I'm going to read the whole thing because it gives us the whole story that we need. Um, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them 
um, neither root nor branch, it will be a wasteland. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. So he says it's going to go very differently for two groups of people. For evildoers, you will be utterly destroyed. For the righteous, you'll actually be the ones doing the destruction. Bit strange. Verse 4. Remember the laws of my servant Moses, the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. He says, You must obey me. And then it ends with, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. Before the great and awesome day, the Lord, the day of the Lord comes. When the day of the Lord is upon us. Elijah will show up. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. In Malachi chapter 4, you see the coming day of the Lord will involve redemption and judgment, salvation and destruction. And Mark opens up with, Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. To, to John's audience at the river, to the Jewish leadership looking down at what he's doing, to Mark's audience, none of this is lost on them. It says that something cataclysmic is about to happen. Something apocalyptic is about to happen. Something that will, sh will change the direction of human history forever. God is about to act in a profound way. The day of the Lord is near. Which is good news to the righteous and awful news to those who refuse to repent. John is in many ways the harbinger of what's about to happen. Verse 7, and he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I. John would have been very impressive to take on the office of Elijah, to speak with the authority, to baptize so many, to look Pharisees, to look Billy Graham himself in the eye and say, you are a snake baby and nothing more. You brood of vipers. You're worthless. You're an empty shell. And goes back to baptizing people. Just kind of flips them the bird and goes back to what he's doing. <coughs> Like he is a caustic figure. Someone, again, who looks a little crazy, don't want to mess with him, and he speaks with an authority that we haven't heard around here in a while. And he says, and even what I'm doing will pale in comparison to who's about to show up. Preach, saying, after me comes he who's mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, which is the stamp on the Isaiah 40 connection. That this is going to look like, your redemption will look like the return of God's presence. And he says, I'm going to baptize, or that, that someone's coming who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You could call John a simple gospel, but you'd be wrong. So I think that it is unbelievably rich. Now, why do we want to read Mark like this? Or Mark, I always say John. I'm obsessed with John. Mark is not a simple gospel. Um, when we come to chapters like this that are just bogged down with Old Testament backstory, we will slow down because I think they're important. 
Um, I also think that it's important to read your Bible in flip-floppy ways. If you have, um, if you have like the references, the centerline references, or mine are down in the corner, use those. They uh, like they're not perfect. They're not even exhaustive, but there are so many gems there that can send you. Especially if something just seems bizarre, if it if it's clearly a quotation or if it's something that you don't understand how that fits, follow the rabbit trail and see where it leads because these writers were writing using the language they knew. Um, we would know, like the Gospels would come alive if we knew our Old Testament better. I'm convinced that for the average person, so like, what language do you really need to know to study the New Testament? Typical answer is Greek. And I would say, sure, for a small swath of people. I would say far more important and far more impactful for the church is that you need to know the language of the Old Testament because that's what the, the gospel writers are using. That's what the gospel writers are using. Those are the scriptures. Those are the images that they're pulling from. Those are the, that's the wording they're pulling from. That's the poetry that they reference. Those are all of the commands and decrees that they are pulling into their gospels. And when we know them, we can, like the, the gospel of Mark jumps off the page. So when we come to sections like this, we'll slow down and chase the rabbit. Uh, yes. John the Baptist and Jesus were cousins. Yep. So they probably knew each other all this time. Did John the Baptist, obviously, was the Holy Spirit, I mean, he was even from this past. Did he know that Jesus was the one he was talking about before the, the Spirit of God descended on him? I think he did. I think when he saw Jesus, he knew. I think to some degree he had to know before that. Um, but John um, John also spent a lot of... Like, we do not know what the lead-up to Jesus' beginning of his ministry looked like and how long John was off doing his own thing. And we even see periods where John is still questioning. Um, so I think John knew and doubted. And knew and doubted. And... Um, You'll even see in Mark, it's hard to tell who's aware of Jesus' like, miraculous baptism and how much John and the crowds perceive this anointing that Jesus receives from the heavens. Um, so John is a complicated guy that had some, some insight, but we see him still struggle with it, especially in prison. Um, so. Oh, I'm sure. So what is, what's the point exactly of this John's baptism? It is, it's a bit like a, a ritual that, actually, I don't think it's all that different from, from the way we baptize. I talk about baptism most often in the context of this is your declaration to everyone what's happening. I'm not a baptismal regenerationist. Like, I don't believe that the Spirit comes on you when you're baptized. Um... The reason I think it looks like that in the scriptures is because baptism and confession are just like in the same five-minute span. But I think that baptism is a lot like a wedding. You like your wedding doesn't make you married. It's your it's your vows that make you married. Um, so the like the the ceremony itself is is pointless 
to some degree. Be, forgive me when I say that. It's pointless to some degree. It's a declaration to everyone of your intent, of your covenant that you've made with one another. And it is, I think it's a social contract where if I attend your wedding, I will now hold you to those vows for the rest of your life. When I marry couples, I tell like the vows, I involve the audience. I say they are promising to each other, and by being here as a witness, you are covenanting to them that you will hold them to this. I think that that's what John's baptism was a lot like. You are turning from your wicked ways and, and realigning yourself with the ways of God. And to symbolize that, here's a baptism. It's a cleansing ritual um, that, can, that is both symbolic and actually very therapeutic. Uh, when people have like habitual sin in their lives, it's amazing how much they enjoy taking showers. It soothes their conscience. So there's like there's actually a connection there. I think too that John, being the son of a priest, his role should have been as a priest in Jerusalem in that temple. When he goes out to the Jordan River, there is certain political message there to the people in the temple. And I think that to a certain extent, it's we, those people going out, they're looking for something different than what's in that temple being taught. And in some ways, that baptism is a rejection of yep. the temple and a rejection of, of the standing order. John, by all rights, should have become a priest in that temple, mm -hmm. and he doesn't. And that would have been quite a story in and of itself. Yep. And... The Pharisees, uh, the leadership, they're not, they're not as concerned with John himself. They're concerned with his popularity. Because um, yeah, you can say whatever foul things you want about me in your own mirror. But you start saying it to large groups of people that believe it and are symbolically rejecting the established, the religious establishment. Now I've got a problem with you, right? And so that's why John was such a caustic figure. Like our version of baptism? No, like even John's baptism. Like <laughs> I think it was altogether a new thing. I, I don't know where he came up with the idea. Yeah. Um, there's precedent for it in the ceremonial cleansing. But in terms of its connection to repentance, I think it's a new thing. Um, now, you could, you could pull baptism. There's some baptism language in Ezekiel. <laughs> baptism of the Spirit. Um, but it doesn't have as much to do, but it, it actually does have a lot to do with cleansing. It's not physical water, but it's a washing in some sense. So um, I think that John is inaugurating a new way of looking at things, and I think that um, the Great Commission picks it up and institutes a new tradition. Yes, sir? On the question of whether John knew in advance whether Jesus was the Messiah, I remember that his mother did. When Mary was pregnant, she visited Elizabeth. Mm -hmm. and yeah, I think it was. I think he knew, and then that it came at varying degrees of understanding. I think he, he like everyone, he didn't know completely. The disciples didn't know completely, um, and I think like the disciples, he went through deep periods of doubt and despair, and he had good reason to. Got his head cut off. So, guy saw the writing on the wall. Did someone else over here have something? I thought I saw it. I'll read this last passage just to um, defend a bit why 
I like these kind of deep dive readings. Um, turn to Romans 1. Summaries can be dangerous if they're left at that and that alone. Um, but they can also be helpful. And here, Paul summarizes the gospel and the opening of the book of Romans. Paul calls himself a servant or slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle or called to be one who is sent, set apart for the gospel of God. And then look at how he defines the gospel, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And on and on. The lines I really want us to, to focus on are which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son. The gospel is not salvation. That is a benefit of the gospel. The gospel is the story of Jesus. And the gospel is the story of Jesus is rooted in the Old Testament writings. And to ignore them accidentally or to cut them off intentionally is a grave mistake, and I think it's the quickest way to just avoid the truth of the gospel. Um, so that I think that when Paul starts to summarize the gospel, that it involves, that it is about Jesus, and the resurrection is itself necessary, and it's all rooted in these promises coming true, then that just to me tells me we need to read our Old Testament as well. And so that's what I hope that we're able to do through the book of Mark, which leans on the Old Testament in a very heavy way, um, and all, all the other three Gospels do as well. But I, I hope that we can spend some time doing that. And you might call me a nerd, but I'm serious. If you have a, a Bible with references down in the corner, if you will just spend some time chasing those rabbit trails, they provide so much fruit to your Bible learners. If you don't have one, tell me, and I will gladly buy you a Bible with one of those. Probably have ten I give away. So... Um, well, I'll help you pick one out because it's they're valuable. And again, they're not exhaustive, but they are valuable. And they, they get us out of our ruts and out of our habits. We like to read James and Romans and Psalms, but this will push us elsewhere. So, all right. That is all I have. And uh, we shall pick it up next week. We'll do verses 9, probably through 13, maybe 15, but probably through 13. Um, again, because we're going to run into so many Old Testament things right here at the beginning. But uh, just so you're aware, the structure goes. Verses, I think, 1 through 13 are Mark telling us kind of the backstory, the prelude. Here's all the extra information you want. And then starting in verse 15, he just lets the story unfold. And he does very little in terms of commentary. So that's why I might not get into 14 and 15. We'll see.